This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. So the title of the talk is Living This Life, Zen and the Teachings of Emptiness. So I'm just going to quote from the Heart Sutra to begin with. Avalokiteshvara, Bodhisattva, doing deep prajna paramita, clearly saw emptiness of all the five conditions, thus completely relieving misfortune and pain. O Jariputra, form is no other than emptiness, emptiness no other than form. Form is exactly emptiness, emptiness exactly form. Sensation, conception, discrimination, awareness are likewise like this. O Shariputra, all dharmas are forms of emptiness, not born, not destroyed, not stained, not pure, without loss, without gain, and so on and so on. And basically, the Heart Sutra kind of like negates all the conventional truths that we take for granted. So as I mentioned before, I'm, I'm currently reading this book called This Life, um, Why Mortality Sets Us Free by the contemporary Swedish philosopher Martin Hadlund. And in this book, he argues against religious faith in favor of what he calls secular faith. He includes Buddhism along with Christianity and other religions. Uh, as practicing a form of religious faith where some form of belief in eternity takes precedence over living this life. He argues that giving precedence to some version of salvation in eternity devalues this life, rendering our love and commitments in this life meaningless. <clears throat> I think... Um, Hagland makes some good points, but I think the interpretation he has of Buddhism misses what we teach here in Ordinary Mind Zen School. But I think his work does shed some light on some of the possible interpretations of the teachings of emptiness that can misinform or even distort our practice, especially when they are interpreted in a way that prioritizes some version of nirvana as being the ending of suffering via a release, say, from the wheel of reincarnation, or even as a release from the personal self into some form of pure awareness or the unborn and undying formless self. So the Heart Sutra is at the core, as the name implies, of Zen Buddhism and Mahayana Buddhism in general, and, and Tibetan Buddhism, and is chanted in monasteries around the world. <clears throat> so it is a condensed teaching 
on the teachings of emptiness. About the realization of how, how realizing emptiness frees us from suffering by recognizing that the self, myself, yourself, has no inherent existence or no inherent self-existence. In a nutshell, it negates the conventional view of reality that things inherently exist as separate identities. If there is no inherent self that is born and dies, then who is it that suffers? If we realize this truth, the teachings imply, we are liberated from suffering. This is all well and good, but it does leave us with the puzzling question, if there is no inherently existing self who is born and who dies, then why do I care so much for the ones I love? And why do I care so much if they do die? So this is where Martin Huglund's work comes into contention. Hugland advocates for what he calls a secular faith rather than a religious faith. And he argues that a life worth living is necessarily premised on the acceptance of finitude. It is knowing that we are going to die, knowing that our partner is going to die, and that all this is going to come to an end is what motivates us and gives our life a sense of purpose. This is why we care. He would argue that, and I know we don't believe this, but if you had some sense of eternity as being endless duration, what a catastrophe that would be to live forever. One would lose all one's sense of purpose and motivation if one had forever to do anything. So, it is knowing that we are going to die that gives us this sense of purpose. So we can see how the emptiness teachings of no inherent self could be taken as another way or another form of avoiding finitude. And how this would not be that much different to religious faith that seeks salvation in eternity and not in this life. So I want to begin by exploring the teachings of emptiness found in the Mahayana Buddhism and the argument presented in these teachings that ignorance of the lack of self-existence is the main cause of suffering. I will then review Hagelin's argument in the light of our ordinary mind Zen teachings and propose that maybe maybe it is possible to fully accept our mortality and the ultimate value of this life and at the same time appreciate the absence of any inherent self-existence and the boundlessness of life itself in all its many diverse forms. In other words, I want to argue that we can have our cake and eat it too. So the emptiness teachings the emptiness teachings are founded in the logic of the 
Majjhimika school of Buddhism, what you would normally come across as reading about the middle way. The Majjhimika school of Buddhism was one of the two principal schools of Mahayana Buddhism in India, the other school being the Yogacara. The name of the school is a reference to the claim made of Buddhism in general, that it is a middle path that avoids the two extremes, firstly of eternalism, the belief that all things exist because of an eternal essence. The Majjhimika school of Buddhism rejects eternity if eternity is defined as an eternal being or essence that is unchanging and timeless. Secondly, Majjhimika Buddhism also rejected what was called in those days nihilism, which was the materialist view at those times that nothing continued after death. This is because, as most of you probably appreciate, traditional Buddhism, including teachers like the Dalai Lama today, believes in reincarnation, the sense in which there is some continuity of mental formation, sometimes it's referred to as the mind stream, that passes from one life to the next. From an OMZ perspective, we would reframe this, I think, as belief not in reincarnation, but in the lived experience of the continuity of our identity from one moment to the next, from one self state to the next uh, in this life. The conviction of the Majjhimika school is that this middle path is best achieved by the understanding that all things are impermanent and interdependent, that is empty of an, any inherent self-existence. This doctrine of universal emptiness of inherent natures is the hallmark of the school and places the school solidly in the tradition associated with the perfection of wisdom, Prajnaparamita literature of Mahayana Buddhism, of which the Heart Sutra is a key part. The key philosopher and founder of this school, Nagarjuna, who lived in India from 150 to 250 CE. From the perspective of emptiness, it is argued that the fundamental cause of suffering is ignorance of this truth, the mistaken apprehension that living beings and objects inherently exist. However, while we may agree that our personal self has no inherent existence, it does not necessarily follow that we don't value it just as much as if it had inherent self-existence. I would say that our sense of personal self is fragile and dependent, lacking inherent self-existence, that it is dependent, like everything else in the universe, on certain conditions and circumstances for it to come into existence and remain in existence. In fact, I think this is exactly the point that Hagelin misses in his book. It is exactly because the personal self has no inherent existence that it is precious. It is precious not only because of our mortality, though, or that's very important, but it's also precious because it is so fragile and easily lost. In fact, 
Losing an intimate partner or family member to madness or dementia may be even more painful than losing them to death. We all have a sense of a personal self and the personal self of others, others who we love dearly. Our relationships and sense of community are dependent on the need we have as human beings to identify as a self that changes while remaining the same. A self that has some continuity through the passage of time. This is what we might refer to as our character. This dream of continuity is so real to us that it is difficult to see that the I of this self has no inherent continuity. The sense of being an embodied being helps us to maintain this sense of continuity along with our social sense of identity. We wake up in the morning and we are this body. We go outside and we have the same identity as we had yesterday. But according to the emptiness teachings, this is our most fundamental delusion. So where I differ and what I want to maintain is that it's a necessary delusion. One that we cannot actually forsake without losing our humanity. We can still recognize our interdependence and impermanence, yet we need the sense of continuity to feel sane, to feel connected, to feel human, to feel myself, and also to provide others with the security that they can depend on us, that we are a person who can make and keep a promise, that I'm not going to wake up one morning and turn into Mr. Jekyll. Um, that sense of ongoing character, someone that um, if I hadn't seen Michael for five years and we met each other again, I would assume that his character would be basically in some way the same. There'd be changes, but there'd be something which continues. But it may be possible to have profound insights into the lack of inherent self-existence. For example, when the Dalai Lama was a young man, he had a personal insight into the unfindability of any inherently existing self. So I'm just going to quote the Dalai Lama here. Sometime during the early 60s, when I was reflecting on a passage by Song Kapa, the founder of the Galupa school to which the Dalai Lama belongs, I was reflecting on this passage about the unfindability and the fact that phenomena are dependent on concepts or conceptuality. It was as if lightning coursed within my chest. Here is the passage that I read, quote, a coiled rope's speckled color and coiling are similar to those of a snake. And when the rope is perceived in a dim area, the thought arises, this is a snake. 
As for the rope, at that time when it is seen to be a snake, the collection and parts of the rope are not even in the slightest way a snake. Therefore, that snake is merely set up by conceptuality. He goes on to say, the impact lasted for a while, and for the next few weeks, whenever I saw people, they seemed like a magician's illusions in that they appeared to inherently exist, but I knew that they actually did not. That experience, which was like lightning in my heart, was most likely at a level below completely valid and incontrovertible realization. This is when my understanding of the cessation of the afflictive emotions as a true possibility became real. So what I want to focus on now is that last sentence spoken by the Dalai Lama. He says, this is when my understanding of the cessation of the afflictive emotions as a true possibility became real. So he's, he's talking about the cessation of suffering here. So the logic of the middle way teachings was that if through this kind of understanding and realization, we really got this, the lack of inherent self, then we would be relieved of our ignorance and therefore of our, our suffering would come to an end. The afflictive emotions would come to an end and we would no longer experience them. And he goes on to state, a wise consciousness grounded in reality understands that living beings and other phenomena, minds, bodies, buildings, and so forth, do not inherently exist. This is the wisdom of emptiness. Understanding reality exactly opposite to the misconception of inherent existence. Wisdom gradually overcomes ignorance. If we take the afflictive emotions to refer to hatred and possessiveness, etc., etc., then yes, this appears to be positive. However, the question becomes more interesting when we consider the emotion known as grief. And, you know, some psychotherapists talk about the core of psychotherapy is about loss and grief. It seems that the teachings of emptiness could mean that if someone we love died, we would no longer experience grief. This is illustrated in one of the stories reported in the Platform Sutra. The Platform Sutra was allegedly written by the sixth ancestor, Huineng, a very famous sixth ancestor in the Zen tradition. And in this particular part of the sutra, um, he's, he has all his disciples, all his monks gathered together, and he's basically telling them that he's soon going to die. And, um, and so when the monks heard this, most of the monks began to weep and cry. There was only one monk who was unmoved and, and shed no tears. And the, uh, the sixth ancestor, Hainang, focused on that young monk and basically praised him, saying that the rest of you don't understand. 
And he said, what exactly have you been practicing all these years in the mountains? And who exactly are you crying for? Are you worried that I don't know where I'm going? If I didn't know where I was going, I would never leave you. You're crying because you don't know where I'm going. If you knew, you wouldn't be crying. And then he goes on to say, kind of like a reference to the Heart Sutra in a sense of the emptiness teachings. He says, our nature isn't subject to birth and death or coming and going. Then he gets them all to sit down and he gives them a, a long poem, which I won't go into right now. But that's just an example of something from the Zen tradition that seems to hint that this kind of realization of emptiness sort of frees us from the need to grieve. From an ordinary mind Zen perspective, if Barry were to announce he was about to die in a few weeks time, I think it would be totally appropriate to be overwhelmed by sadness. In fact, I remember the last time I saw one of my teachers, Sexton Burke Roshi in Bellingen, who was dying from cancer. And I, the last time I saw him, we said our goodbyes and I was overwhelmed by grief and, uh, in that, in, at, at that moment. But even a more kind of mundane example, uh, um, Robert Aitken Roshi from Hawaii always told a story about if there was a house fire which burnt down all his books in the library, he would feel the loss of that as well. Um, so, you know, like, I don't think Zen practice is about us becoming impervious to loss However, if we take the argument about ignorance of inherent nature as being the main problem, then it kind of follows that an enlightened person, if there ever could be such a thing, would not experience grief over the loss of books. But not only books, the enlightened person would not experience grief over the death of his mother or father or son or daughter or intimate partner. If this is the outcome of enlightenment, that may be enlightenment is not such a good thing after all. So this is the where the work of Martin Haglund again comes in, which is relevant to our Zen practice. He argues that religious faith, belief in eternity, in unity with God or Brahman or Buddha nature, is antithetical to the valuation of the unique uniqueness of human life as exemplified in the loss of a beloved family member or intimate partner. He would see religious faith as an avoidance or flight from the acceptance of finitude that we come to an end. He argues that secular faith, because it is founded on the acceptance of finitude, gives meaning to life in its preciousness, knowing that our relationship is finite. So even if we assume it is possible through meditative insight or philosophical analysis to totally free ourselves from the delusion of inherent self-existence, is that an outcome that we would value or even want if it means we're not going to grieve the loss of someone we care deeply for? 
So I would like to propose from an ordinary mind's end perspective, seeing clearly that we have no inherent existence does not have to lead to a dilution of the experience of finitude. Accepting our finitude does not mean we have to give up the religious dimension of our practice, if you want to call it that. Rather, I would say that our Zen practice facilitates the ability to let go, enabling us to fully experience our grief. I think this is exactly what Zen practice can teach us. The ability to let go means we don't hold on to a curative fantasy of living forever in Nirvana or anywhere else. The ability to let go enables us not to hold on to a relationship that is no longer loving because we are afraid of endings and the loss that follows. I would like to say Zen practice supports us to feel the pain of our loss precisely because we value this life and this relationship. Therefore, to see that the personal self lacks inherent self-existence is not incompatible with the values that Hagland describes as secular faith. As Mazumi Roshi, Joker Beck's teacher states, we do not see that our life right here, right now is Nirvana. Maybe we think that Nirvana is a place where there are no problems, no more delusions. Maybe we think Nirvana is something very beautiful, something unobtainable. We always think that Nirvana is something very different from our own life. But we must really understand that Nirvana is right here, right now. In our ordinary minds in school, Nirvana could be seen as non-separation, being one with our life as it is right now. It is beyond delusion and enlightenment. In fact, it is beyond delusion and enlightenment as opposites. So it includes delusion. We can be one with delusion because we see that delusion is empty. But when emptiness is taught as something to be realized or attain, attained, when one has completely purified oneself of ignorance, I think this is a betrayal of the emptiness teachings, leading to being caught forever on the never-ending path of step-by-step -step practice. The ending of ignorance is a gaining idea, in a way. What the Heart Sutra teaches is the end of all gaining ideas. It's the end of the teaching that there is a path that leads to nirvana. There is no path precisely because practice realization is always now. You are the path. So as the Heart Sutra says, all dharmas are forms of emptiness, not born, not destroyed, not stained, not pure, without loss, without gain. Dogen himself says, when the 10,000 dharmas or the 10,000 things are without self, there is no life and death. Mazumi Roshi asks, without self, whose death is it? Who dies? Who are we grieving? This language of the unborn and the undying you will come across when you study these classical texts. This language points to no inherent self-existence. There is no separate thing that is born, and hence there is no separate thing that dies. 
There is only one undifferentiated reality, call it what you will. Yet, as Dogen says, flowers fall amid our regret and yearning, and hated weeds grow apace. In other words, the Buddha way does not mean that we lose all sense of our unique identity and become one with oneness. Rather, we appreciate how oneness manifests as difference and uniqueness. We become one with oneness and uniqueness. We live and breathe our humanity, including our conventional truths, our world of duality, and at the same time, we marvel at the wonder of the emptiness of it all. A haiku by the Japanese poet Hakuen reflects, reflecting on the cherry blossoms and spring in his life, quote, what is it but a dream? The blooming as well lasts only seven cycles. This haiku refers to the seven day life of the cherry blossom, seven cycles which also reflect the seven decades of his life as he died in 1806 at the age of 66. William Shakespeare also captures the paradox of emptiness in the immortal words spoken by the character Prospero from Act 4, Scene 1 of his play, The Tempest. Our revels now are ended. <clears throat> These are actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit shall dissolve. And like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. Yet this does not mean we don't value and love dearly such stuff as dreams are made on. Again, to finish with a quote from the Dalai Lama one more time, he says, all of us have a sense of I, but we need to realize that it is only designated in dependence upon mind and body. The selflessness that Buddhists speak of refers to the absence of a self that is permanent, partless, and independent. Or more subtly, it can refer to the absence of inherent existence of any phenomenon. However, Buddhists do value the existence of a self that changes from moment to moment, designated in dependence upon the continuum of mind and body. All of us validly have this sense of I. When Buddhists speak of the doctrine of selflessness, we are not referring to the non-existence of this self. With this I, all of us rightfully want happiness and do not want suffering. It is when we exaggerate our sense of ourselves and other phenomena to mean something inherently existent that we get drawn into many, many problems. Yes, 
So, our Zen path does not require us to renounce all mortality or free us from mourning the loss of the beloved. Rather, the realization of the emptiness of all phenomena is wondrous, as is our dream of human love for the unique other, who, like ourselves, has no inherent existence, being such stuff as dreams are made on.